You're listening to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention Podcast. Um, really excited to have uh, Maddie with us from Finland, uh, where she does live operations at Ubisoft uh, Red Links. Um, Maddie, I'm super excited for today's talk. Um, I think we're going to spend a, a fair bit on of talking about live ops tools today, uh, which is, I think, something that is super, super important. And a lot of people really don't think too much about. And uh, over over my years uh, of experience, I've seen that game devs are really good at making games and they often kind of suck at making tools, um, you know, which makes sense. I just want to get back to making my games and stuff. But uh, sometimes, you know, those tools make it easy for you to introduce errors or difficult for you to do the things that you want to do, or, you know, they're a little bit too dev oriented and uh, you know, all, all sorts of things that I've seen. So it's a uh, super, super fun topic today. Uh, really excited to, to dig into that. But uh, before we do, I would love to hear, you know, what is your story? How did you get into games and, and how did you end up in Finland? Hi, hello. Really good to be here. So yeah, I'm really excited to be talking about tools today because it's literally my favorite thing in the world. So yeah, um, I first started in the industry, I think eight years ago, back in Ubisoft Bucharest. And uh, I started as a game tester and I was working on various uh, AAA uh, HD games like Wildlands and Assassin's Creed Syndicate and a bunch of other Assassin's Creed. And I was really like into the monetization side and into the store options, especially like on PlayStation and Xbox, the third party stores, because, you know, live ops on HD is not as straightforward on as on mobiles. So it was it was very fascinating to me. I was trying to learn a little bit about that. And I was literally annoying the monetization manager back in Paris with questions like, hey, but like, why are we trying to sell this weapon and not like the other one? And uh, yeah, I was <laughs> I was having fun over there. Yeah. So but then after that, um, I worked for five years in uh, Bucharest and um, three years ago, I decided to try my luck in Finland. Uh, working for Ubisoft Red Things, and I was hired as a development tester. So basically, my job was to, you know, test the features that were going to go live. And it was a big jump for, for me because I went from testing HD games to testing mobile games. And I literally knew nothing about mobile games and how, how does it work. Of course, I was playing mobile games, but, you know, like playing a game and make, making the game, it, it's quite a different thing. So, yeah, I got into that. I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, it was a snap decision from my part. And um, I had no idea how cold it actually is in Finland. <laughs> yeah, Tom, it's really cold. So, yeah, I was a surprise. Uh, shouldn't have been a surprise, but it was. So, yeah. And then uh, it was quite a journey because, you know, I learned quite a lot when I came working in a production studio as compared to a QC studio like back home. And um, I think that, you know, because I was so eager to learn and I was so excited about everything, um, they asked me if I want to specialize in testing live ops uh, for the game uh, South Park Phone Destroyer. 
which was literally launched like a month before I uh, I was hired. I actually crashed the party that we have for the launch. Uh, I wasn't literally hired yet, but I was at a party and I was like, okay, this is cool. <laughs> so I got into testing live ops, uh, which meant that I was the dedicated tester for uh, making sure that everything that went uh, live in terms of events and offers and promotions were uh, as designed and without any errors, like you mentioned. So, yeah. And um, yeah, uh, I think a year after testing LiveOps, I was offered a position uh, as a associate LiveOps manager when uh, one became available. So that's when my real journey with LiveOps actually started. And um, of course, I was using the tool that we have built in-house for the project for uh, live management. But now it was just um, a little bit more than just using it as a, as a testing tool. I was using it to create the, the things, the offers and the promotions. So, yeah, I was really getting into it and um, kind of like finding what could have been done a little bit better and could have been optimized and, uh, you know, where the pain points were, like, for example, setting something up was a little bit more, I wouldn't say difficult, but, you know, having my background uh, with QA and uh, also maybe not knowing exactly how the processes worked uh, from that side, I was able to notice uh, quite a lot of things that could have been simplified a little bit. So, yeah. <laughs> That's really great. So just out of curiosity, I did convert our temperature and Helsinki's temperature. So you actually are colder. So I'm in Madison, Wisconsin, which is generally kind of cold too. Although during the summer, it's really nice here. Really, really nice. Like you forget about the winters during the summer and then winter mm -hmm. hits again and it's, you know, just slap in the face. <laughs> but, you know, you guys are at seven and we're at eight degrees, you know, Celsius right now. So you are mm -hmm. just a, a smidgen colder. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm not used to it. Like back in my country, it's like we have winters, you know, but they're not as harsh. Like uh, my first year in Finland, I actually experienced minus uh, 28 degrees Celsius. And um, it, it's it's harsh, you know, yeah, you literally cannot breathe when you go outside. So I was not used to it. I was like, oh, what's happening? <laughs> Why is it so cold? <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh... It's, it's a different beast. You just got to, you know, figure out how to, uh, you know, survive more than anything. <laughs> I wouldn't yeah, say thrive. You just try to survive. But uh, It's basically survival up here. Yeah. But I guess that keeps you indoors and, and playing more games. So it's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, that's the bright side of things. <laughs> yeah, that's super fun. So, um, you know, while you were doing... Uh, testing and stuff, you know, you, you started on more of these like AAA console type testing and then you went to mobile, like what does mobile testing look like? And, uh, you know, just sharing a little bit, like the first time that I did um, software development at like an enterprise type level, uh, really working with like a real QAer, you know, I, I went in with this project that I was like, oh, this is like golden. I got ripped apart. I was, you know, I got the strangest comments ever. You know, it was like, oh, well, if you click the button 26 times in a row, uh, you know, this odd thing happens. And I'm like, 
who would possibly click this button 26 <laughs> times in a row? And like, how do their brains even work? Uh, but yeah, I had this like long list of these strangest little issues. I, you know, obviously they were important and I fixed them, you know, because we don't want a user to be able to click a 20, you know, whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, coming into mobile, what does that sort of thing look like? Like when you, you know, approach testing, you know, new features and, and live ops and things like that? So, yeah, um, the scenario that you mentioned with, you know, like pushing buttons randomly, like a number of times, that's actually required in testing, especially on mobile games. We also do that on consoles, of course, uh, with, you know, smashing the PlayStation controller and see what happens, how the game reacts to that. But it's actually called creative testing. And uh, uh, we are trained to do this. Um, it's a little bit a step further than just, you know, checking the functionality and checking the design and things like that. But yeah, coming from uh, testing consoles to testing mobiles, I was able to transition quite easily because, you know, the field of testing is the same. It's just that the medium is different. So mm -hmm. instead of smashing the PlayStation controller, you just, you know, like do all these interactive actions on the mobile screen and see how the game reacts to that. You'd be surprised, but I've actually found crashes, uh, like the game crashing um, on certain um, kind of like inputs on the screen. So, you know, you, you need to check all those to make sure that the game is stable. And, uh, you know, people are unpredictable, especially on mobile games. Think of it. You have your mobile game in your hand, um, you know, in various scenarios. You're on a train or something like that. What if your mobile game, your your phone and with your mobile game actually drops, right? The game needs to be fine. <laughs> so yeah, you know, real life scenarios like this do happen by accident. So you need to make sure that your game reacts gracefully to that. When it comes to live ops, um, you know, for example, in the game that I'm working on right now, um, it's basically a bunch of user interfaces, a bunch of pop-ups, right? So you need to make sure that those pop-ups and menus react positively to all the interactions that uh, a user uh, can do. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's basically smashing buttons. Um, but the core of the testing is the same. You have the same principles. You have the technical requirements. You have the um, UI and menus requirements. You have the third parties requirements. So it's just a matter of adjusting those requirements. But the testing is the same. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know, man. I mean, did you get really clever where like, you know, you have the game up and you toss it in your phone and stick it in your back pocket and, you know, call yourself and all those different scenarios? <laughs> well, we, we have a joke uh, in-house because, you know, the game is called Salt Park Phone Destroyer. So, you know, you have to destroy your phone and make sure that the game is still working, you know, because that's the point. <laughs> But uh, no, not not that creative. Um, but um, I've done some pretty weird test cases, uh, even on the mobile game. But you know, it's it's better to be safe and sorry because communities can find these. Uh, the players can find these issues much faster than you can. <laughs> You'd be surprised by how how good gamers are at finding issues. So you have to always be one step ahead of them and try to be better at finding these things. <laughs> it's difficult when you've got like a million QAers versus, you know, yes. your, your limited team. <laughs> did you yes, have, not yeah, do you have, or did you have like 
tons of devices. Like I've got, you know, (laughs) multiple like phones and, you know, all all things around my desk. Yes, of course. That's, that's the life that I had as a mobile (laughs) tester. I think I had at some point 10 devices and I was testing on five of them at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I was like really good at that thing. But yeah, you have to have multiple devices, operating systems, um, versions of the operating system, and um, of course, device types and uh, resolutions and stuff like that. So you need to make sure that the game is running correctly on all those uh, types of things. So I had like a bunch of devices on my desk at all times. Super interesting. I. You've got my mind like like thinking through <laughs> things now, you know, thinking about like tools and and testing and stuff. So uh, we'll talk. We'll try to limit it to live ops for now, uh, just so that we don't uh, blow people's minds too much. But uh, you know, yeah. thinking about live ops, um, you know, probably I'm going to schedule some event that's going to happen like in two weeks from now. Um, and it's going to be like a seven-day event. Maybe on Tuesday, I've got a gameplay that gives you double rewards. Thursday, there's a different one. There should be pop-ups alerting users of those changes, maybe some notifications, different things in there. Obviously, everything is translated. Um, <clears throat> so, But I also have to test those on probably multiple devices, right? At least iOS and Android, maybe a, you know, a couple older versions, different screen sizes and stuff like that. Um, you know, is that something that should be built into your tools? Like some way to effectively test that where I can like say, okay, these are the five devices that I'm using to test and then like pop up those things, you know, on those devices. Yeah, so what you're thinking about, I think, is integration testing, which basically means uh, getting to test these uh, types of scenarios before a human being actually gets the game uh, in their hands. So before the QA tester actually gets to test this, there should be a system implemented on uh, development side. And this is something that programmers uh, are better prepared to talk about. But yeah, we have been discussing integration testing and we have some sort of integration testing already. Um, And of course, you also can ease the burden on QA by automating some stuff and making sure that you're templating the game in a way. So, for example, you mentioned all those pop-ups and messages and localizations and stuff like that. So if you can have those templated, so not unique per each event, uh, that would also help the uh, testing team quite a lot. For example, in my own work, I tend to have templates created and just reuse them as much as I can. Of course, if there's a special occasion that needs to be marked as special, then we do unique things and text and visuals. However, you know, we basically have the same visuals rerunning from time to time. So the testing team needs to test these again. If we, for example, uh, have an update that, uh, you know, change the client version and stuff like that. So you need to make sure that those assets are still correctly displayed uh, on all those devices and resolutions. But, you know, there are a lot of tips and tricks uh, from QA side to ensure that you are testing, but you're not testing. You need to test smart, not hard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It almost seems like we need to uh, put together an in-depth how to test live ops effectively, you know, talk to a bunch of expert QAers and then compile some thoughts there. Uh, That sounds great. Um, But I I do think 
maybe we should zoom out for just a second because I, I think I got a little ahead of myself. Um, Maddie, can you explain like what exactly is a tool or a live ops tool? Because I think people can get this confused a lot. Um, and even when you look at like third party tools, I feel like everyone claims to be able to do live ops. Um, and I kind of disagree with that. Um, but like in your mind, what is a live ops tool? Like, can you frame it for, you know, listeners in terms of what they should be thinking of? Right. So having worked on building uh, our own tool and optimizing it and streamlining it, we did learn quite a lot about uh, life management tools and uh, what it's okay to do and what you should avoid doing and stuff like that. So to get started on this, I think that a lot of people confuse the tools with the game systems themselves. And I've seen people that weren't very satisfied with what they thought was the tool, but actually they weren't satisfied with how the game systems uh, were designed to work. So a tool is basically a series of interfaces that, you know, they allow you to interact with the server, with the game client and make things happen. However, the tool in itself cannot do things that the game cannot. So they're very linked together. They depend on each other. So if you have a very clean system and a very uh, clean game that's designed to work, you know, logically step by step, your tool would do the same. Um, of course, there's a lot of tricks that you can have when building your tool, for example, automating some of these steps to happen outside of the user's view. So for example, if you have to set up an offer, you know, the server, the backend could maybe do, I don't know, six actions, but in the tool side, you only display like two variables, two fields, and then the user does that and everything else that happens is out of the user's view. You know, you think that these things are kind of like uh, common sense, but they're really not because if the tool is developed with a uh, development mindset, as in how a programmer would see it, uh, it's quite different from how a live ops person actually works on it, you know. Um, so it's important when you're building your tool to listen to the end user and how they want their workflow to look like. And, you know, like uh, setting up events and offers and live ops, it's not the only thing that, for example, I do in my work. So it shouldn't be taking me more than five minutes to set up an event. So we need to ensure that the tools allow for speed of execution and that they're created for you know, for human minds, not for, for robots, because, you know, a human mind, we don't like cognitive strain, you know, we don't like to be, um, to have to pay attention closely for a long period of time when we're doing something. We want things to be fast and quick and easy. And a good tool will provide you with that. And, you know, all those expert settings that uh, most live ops people really want, you know, all that flexibility that you want and that you need when you're managing a live game, those in the tool should be displayed, in my opinion, as a uh, option and not a requirement. So, you know, if I want to set up a simple event, I shouldn't be forced to go through five or six steps when, you know, the simple setup just requires two, right? The other ones should be an option, but not a requirement. You know what I mean? I don't know. Do I make sense? <laughs> Yeah, totally. Um, I'm just like envisioning um, almost maybe like a good comparison would be, uh, so I, I, I like to play music and, and stuff um, in my free time. I don't as much anymore, but I, I should get back into it. Um, 
but anyways, uh, I remember going to this uh, website. There's a, a company here in town that they like sell like microphones and amps and guitars and things like that. <clears throat> and I went there to like buy something. And I think the first time that I bought something, I had to go through that whole like customer registration and all this stuff. And it took like, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes. And it was just a headache. And, you know, by the time I was done, I was like, it's almost worth it just to pay a little bit more to go to my Amazon and click buy now and know that everything is defaulted into like my credit card and my address. And like, mm -hmm. I'm just going to get that thing in like two days. Um, yeah. And then, you know, I think I went back and I tried the site again. And for some reason, like they didn't save my information and they like <laughs> made me start doing it. And I just was like, I'm done. And I quit. And I went to Amazon <laughs> and bought it there. Um <clears throat> But it, it's almost like that, like all those, you know, extra fields, which like, okay, maybe I do know that I'm going to have five offers that are going to go to this user at once. And so I need that advanced setting to like prioritize which one should show and where and, and things like that. But especially after I've set that, like the one time, if I'm going to redo that again in a month, like it should take the stuff that I set before and know that, okay, this is the offer that I want to be like the primary login offer. And this is the one that I want to pop when the user goes into the arena or whatnot um, and not force me to go through all those steps. But, you know, likewise, if I'm, you know, looking at my day-to-day -day metrics and I realize, Hey, revenue's down a little bit today, or uh, something's off with my economy a little bit, I need to just like launch this, uh, let's say a uh, double campaigns reward event today because people aren't spending their stamina and I want them to, uh, it should be like a quick, I select the double, you know, campaigns reward configuration, uh, you know, maybe a click or two at, for like choosing today. And then that event should basically just be live and players, you know, get those things um, rather than having to like go through the steps of filling out all the little details and stuff like mm. that. If I'm kind of, yeah. Looking. So, that's what I mean when I am also talking about templating your work as much as you can, because, you know, once you know how your live ops is going to look on your game, then you go about creating your tool, not the other way around. So the live tools should not come first, but rather the monetization model, the live ops model, what you plan to do with the game, what type of events you're planning to have, what's the cadence that you're planning to follow. And when you have all this information, then you can go ahead and build your tool because it's going to be much easier to, you know, identify what can be a template, what needs to be uh, customized, what doesn't need to be customized. Also, you, you, you need to have in mind that, you know, not all dynamic elements in the game need to be dynamic, you know, like not all the time. You need to keep the game fresh, but that freshness can be um, accomplished to other things than, you know, like modifying this visual here and that <laughs> visual there. You know, I mean, there are more and more in-depth techniques that uh, work best uh, and work better than just, you know, like messing with the visuals and things like that. Of course, that's also important and, you know, it, it is an option, but then, uh, like I said, they should be that option not the requirements when you're setting up something yeah but I yeah like you that. know template as much as you can to make your your work easier and faster yeah that's great have you seen 
mistakes happen when people are, are building tools beyond just this maybe developer mindset where, you know, you, you can do anything you want, but it really takes, like, mm. you have to be a developer or you have to take a really long time to do it. Like, have you seen any other mistakes mm. made? So one thing that I've seen happening is, you know, uh, when you're building a uh, small uh, tool for a small team and you have um, already a person that you know that is going to use that tool, you tend to build the tool according to that user, you know, uh, to that user's specific user's needs and specific user's workflows and stuff like that. And I think that that uh, can become, at first, it doesn't look like a mistake, you know, because you're building for someone that is going to use the tool. But the point is not to build for someone, but the point is to build for all range of users, uh, novice users, expert users. Everyone should be able to use the tool as quickly as possible and not have, you know, an onboarding of, you know, a couple of weeks just to understand how to do one action. So it's important to build the tool for everyone, not for one person, because when you do that, only one person can use it. And you know how it is in the, in the industry as a whole, people leave, people come, you cannot have a tool that's personalized uh, for one, and then someone else comes in and it takes forever to learn the tool. And also it's really awesome if you can to build documentation inside the tool. So if you have a uh, procedure and a process of setting something up that's very long and it requires a lot of steps, it's important to tell the user what's expected of him. And let, my, let me talk a little bit about user interfaces as a whole and, you know, like designing user experiences because that is immensely important and it can make a lot of difference. Like as a, as a tool user, because that's most of my job, you wouldn't imagine how easier my life is when the user interfaces are intuitive and also they help me prevent errors from happening because error prevention should be built into the tool because people make mistakes. They, it, you cannot avoid that. You know, you're tired, you're thinking about something else. You have like a hundred things to do for that day. So things can happen. And the tool, a good tool should be able to stop you from making those errors. And, you know, we have built on our project a lot of validation checks and a lot of error prevention uh, systems that have helped and improved the health of the game considerably. So, yeah, I think that's kind of like the most important thing that that I have no idea what you asked, but yeah. <laughs> no, that, that's really good. So I, I'm sure as you're talking about uh, live ops errors, which I, I kind of feel like this is the black uh, black sheep of, you know, <laughs> It, it's kind of like, you know, we don't talk about death, like, you know, everyone dies, right? Um, and, and I think the reality is, is that if something can go wrong in your game, at some point, it's probably going to go wrong. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's the definition of live ops errors. Like, you know, little things can happen. I've seen people copy the $99 value of, you know, diamonds into the 99 cent one. And I kid you not, users found it, as you mentioned, very fast. And, you know, within like the 20 minutes that they got that switch back out, they'd already wrecked their economy for like three months. And it's really hard to undo that. Um, and, and that was just a, a minor Excel copy pasting type error. Um, 
which I, I think that one, hopefully you could, you know, build into the tools, but like, what are some types of errors that you've seen happen? And that like, how have you guys been able to uh, set up some stuff to be able to prevent those? Because I'm sure other people are wondering, like, how can I prevent more errors from happening? You know, the thing is that um, you cannot prevent all errors from happening. You know, um, some errors will happen, like you mentioned, if they can happen, they will happen at some point uh, because the tool itself, it doesn't know what you want as a user. I mean, it can help you and guide you like do you want this or do you want that but it is in the mind of the designer so a lot of the responsibility is on the person who is using the tool that being said there are systems that can be put in place to check for the most obvious mistakes that could be made because for example the one that you mentioned with i don't know the wrong price point or something like that a tool cannot know what price point you want for a, an offer or a shop item and things like that the, the tool would just trust you that hey is that price point existent on the server it is okay great so i'm gonna put it there uh but then there are systems that can help you for example um find assets that are not on the live game so for example when you have a uh, game that's like ours the one that i'm working on that we we work a lot with a lot of art art right so um i don't know if you checked our game but our art is amazing it's magnificent and it's one of the things that our players really love about our game so we leverage that quite a lot in our live ops so we have built a system that would allow us to uh, see before it even gets into testing if that particular uh, asset is available for usage right so if it's not my tool would just display a red field and it will tell me that hey this is not existent right so um we've we've done that uh, which has helped us quite a lot in our workflow. We've also put some checks on, um, you know, our gotcha systems um, because, you know, uh, game economies can get quite complicated in free-to-play games. So we needed to ensure that um, the content that we are delivering through our gifts, our reward packs, and uh, our offers uh, is available to all types of users, you know, and the locks that we have on certain content um, do not prevent the user from getting that. So for example, we have fallback systems. If a user cannot get the specific content, then our uh, tool will automatically fall back on the next available content. So it kind of prevents an error where um, the user doesn't get anything from that specific pack. So that has also helped us a lot because, you know, users can be quite vocal when they feel like they're, they do something and they didn't get it. So yeah, there's a lot of systems that you can implement in a, in a live tool that would make your life easier. The point that I'm trying to make though, is that it, that doesn't mean that you don't have a responsibility to pay attention to what you're doing in your work anymore. Right. Yeah. Oh, definitely. You got to got to be detail oriented. Have you yes. ever done have you ever done something where like uh, as you add like your currencies or your items into your tools, you associate like a dollar value so that your tool can tell you, hey, if players get everything from this event or they buy this whole offer, like this is the total value that they're getting from it. 
Yeah, we we don't have that integrated in our specific tool. Um, it could be valuable uh, for kind of like to have a glance at what you're doing. Both, but I think that most live ops people have extensive Excel documents with just this type of information. So we do have that information uh, readily available. It's just that it's not in the tool. So that's the thing with tools that um, it's great when a tool can inform you about things, but when you're building your own in-house tool, that type of features kind of like tend to fall to the cracks uh, and they're not seen as important or, you know, urgent to to develop. So those are kind of like nice to haves. Uh, but yeah, I would literally love a tool that would tell me that in the tool without me having to go to my Excels and be like, okay, let's calculate with the formula. So this brings me to something that I really wanted to mention about tool developing for games is that... Most times, if you have to use a uh, Excel formula or a third-party software to figure something out in order to set up something in the tool, then the tool is not really doing its job. So all that math, all those formulas that you know Excel do, the tool should be doing that. Because if you already use that tool to set up uh, an offer, an event, uh, especially with gotcha systems and things like that. All the math should be already there. So you just input a couple of numbers and then there you have your promotional offer, right? Uh, but I've seen systems where, you know, you had to go to an Excel and do some formulas to get a value that the tool was expecting. So it's important that the tool doesn't make expectations of you, but rather adapts to your expectations, if you know what I mean. So the tool is working for you, not you for it, right? Yeah. I like that. That's more common than you might think. Yeah, right. <laughs> <And> yeah, <laughs> I, I've seen some interesting variations of tools that include things like, you know, George is the only one that's allowed to do it because it's raw JSON that goes up into like a Google calendar that the game downloads and you can get one event per day, but <laughs> very, very interesting, uh, specific things. Um, to that point, you know, you mentioned earlier of like making a tool for a smaller team and how sometimes you can, you know, get really focused on like the one user and like their specific use mm. cases and stuff. Um, do you think it's important at a company to try to have like a tool per game or is it more effective to have like one tool that can work across multiple games or, you know, <laughs> Well, I have a dream, Tom. <laughs> I have a dream that um, the company will have just one tool uh, that is cross-game and cross-platforms. Um, I think that would be, you know, the easiest solutions because imagine that you have one live ops manager that jumps from one project to another. You want to make sure that that person can transition to the uh, next project as easily as they can without having to learn a new tool from scratch. Uh, so in my opinion, it would be beneficial for a company uh, if they have multiple games at the same time running live to have the same system of tools. And if that's not possible, because, you know, there's a lot of complications that can happen there when it comes to, you know, frameworks and languages that are used in the game and things like that. It's not always easy to make that a reality. But I think with the, what could be made is to have the tool similar um, 
between projects, right? So what I'm trying to say is that even if you don't follow the same steps for the same action uh, in the uh, multiple games, at least the, the look of the tool and the workflow of the tool should be the same. Right. Mm. So it would be easier for the user to just go from one project to another and switch it and instantly know what needs to be done and how it needs to be done. You know? Yeah, that totally makes sense. Do you guys have kind of that one tool or working towards that one tool or is it because I know you've got a lot of different like offices and stuff throughout the world, too. Yeah, so right now we're not really looking into that, uh, but I am personally trying to pitch for a project like that. Um, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, well, you do have a dream, so. <laughs> I do have a dream. <laughs> we'll have we'll have to loop back, uh, you know, once your dream is a reality, do another episode of, you know, all the learnings when everyone else, you know, has a similar dream. <laughs> mm. <clears throat> Um, cool. Well, let's switch gears a little bit about this like project specific tool and talk a little bit about, uh, like commercial tools. Um, so this is probably more oriented towards, uh, smaller companies and, and maybe folks that have, uh, overcome that first hurdle, which is how do I make a game that's fun enough that players stick around and play it? Um, and, and they're finally starting to make a little bit of money and they're realizing, hey, I need to deliver better experiences to my players. I need better ways to be able to control that. I can't just do that one monthly update mm-hmm. and you know react to everything that's going around. So they've you know kind of identified I need live ops because that's what everyone is saying. And I I see these other games where things are just like new experiences and things are changing rapidly. Um, But, you know, what is the the right time to do like a project specific tool versus like looking at a commercial tool? And, you know, when would you say it's better to have a commercial tool versus starting your own? Or, you know, is there some threshold where a commercial tool is going to, not work as well and and it's probably time to switch over to your own tool or yeah what are your thoughts around that well you know this is kind of like a a tricky topic because um it all depends on what you're trying to accomplish and it also depends on what the external tool has to offer because if you're looking for something that's very um, specific to your needs and your live operations are very specific then it's better to build your own tools and also with external tools you don't have as much control over what's being developed on the tool and uh, you know like a team of external developers will not necessarily implement whatever you need or wish to have Mm -hmm. Uh, but on the other hand when you're working with a commercial tool you do have a team of developers that are experts in that field so they can offer you support and you know help you out so both kind of like um, types of tools have their own merits and their their own disadvantages so that's why i'm saying that I think it, it, it's really important to know what you are looking for. If you have a specific live operations in mind that you want to do on your game, then you should probably go for your own uh, tool if you can afford it, if you have the human resources to, to kind of like go into that and make it work. Uh, 
But on the other hand, if you do not have the human resources and you do, you know, like the basic live operations, you're not exactly sure what you want to do and how you want to do it. And you just want to get started with live ops. Then, yeah, commercial tools are, I think, better for that because they offer you the guidance that you need towards actually running your game live. So, yeah, it kind of like depends what you're going after and what the expertise of the team is and the seniority. And, you know, do you have other live games? Do you have experience with it? What have you learned and what can you bring in the other game? So I think it's a it's a decision that, you know, leadership teams need to make uh, thinking about it quite, quite, you know, thoroughly. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you a question, and if you don't know the answer, that's totally fine. Uh, but you mentioned, um, well, if you have the human resources and you can afford it, um, you know, some people are probably wondering, what does that actually mean? Like, you know, how many people and who does it actually take to build a tool like this? And like, how long would it take to effectively get something together that is, you know, workable and not just going to introduce tons and tons of errors into my game? Right. So I think that um, this can be done with just a couple of people. Uh, it doesn't need a big uh, team. You can just have, you know, your backend programmer, your uh, tool programmer, and then someone to help with the design on and off to make sure that, you know, specifically the user, the end user of the tool should be involved uh, in this from the start. Um, typically, that's a live ops manager or live ops specialist who knows how the game will be run uh, once it's live. But I do think that this should be done very early in the development process of the game um, because the long longer that you wait on it, the more difficult it will be to build the systems then. Uh, it's important that they are built, you know, together, the game system and the tool system together working from, you know, day one. I don't think that, um, so when I arrived on the project, the tool was already uh, quite established, uh, but I don't think that uh, seeing the, the experience that I had with um, improving and streamlining, streamlining the existing tool, I don't think that it should take a long time to have a rough version of the tool. Of course, when you're building the tool, you need to ensure that you are making space for uh, additional features, you know, for growing the tool, um, creating it, you know, with the expansive mindset instead of, okay, this is what I have here. That's it. That's all I'm going to have. No, 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 never. LiveOps doesn't really function like that. You need to be able to iterate uh, on the versions of your tool and the features and add multiple layers of complexity depending on your needs. That's why I kind of personally prefer working with project uh, specific tools because you can literally control uh, what goes into the tool, when it goes, when you need it. And uh, it's easier because you're designing your own tool based on the needs that you have in LiveOps, right? So I think, I don't know, optimistically in a couple of months, you should have a rough version of a tool that would at least help you, I don't know, send uh, in-game messages to players, uh, put on a couple of offers and shops and stuff like that. It doesn't need to be complicated, especially at first. It really doesn't. Uh, the, the simpler and easier that you can make it from the beginning, the easier your life will be three years into the live game. <laughs> That's great. That's super great. Um, cool. Uh, any other things we should think about from like a, a tools perspectives? In which respect? Because there's a I lot of things. To be. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that was generally I mean, the the end of my questions on on tools. But um, oh, actually, I, I, one one thing that I did want to ask, you know, uh, I hear this a lot, and this is going to lean a little into your like QA uh, background and stuff. Yeah. So some teams that I talk to are very much on the line of, I like to test everything in staging in my tool. And then I port that up to like production and I don't touch anything in production. It's pristine and it just goes out. Uh, Then I hear other teams are like, I do not do it that way because sometimes I have things in staging that I don't have in production. And even though it was tested and everything worked once it, you know, is flipped on, it doesn't work there. Um, then I have other teams that like to do both. Um, and then I have other teams that are like, well, I like to test in production. Uh, but in order for them to have like the real experience, I'll like schedule the event here. And then I'll like, change who it's targeted to, to like just my testers and I'll change the time to like today. And then they get like the week's worth of events to make sure that things are like working as we expect it to. Um, and then they can, you know, change the time back and enable it for the real users. And the other folks are like, I don't like to do it that way because sometimes we forget to change it back and then the event doesn't happen for users. Um, And then other folks have come up with uh, this idea of time warping events. So like I only test in production, but I'm going to leave it scheduled where it is. So I know that the assets are there, which I think you guys have solved. Um, I know the assets are there. I know that it's scheduled. It's still going to go out for users. Um, But like now on my device, I can change the time to like next Tuesday and I can verify that the pop-up works and the game mode gives me double rewards or whatnot. Um, what is your general take and recommendations on uh, different people that are thinking about like how to test live ops within that context? Like, is there a right flow or are, are there, you know, a little rightness in, in all those different methods and things? I, I don't think any of them are like, you know, wrong because you are getting your work done regardless. Uh, it's just a matter of how precise they are and how safe. Um, what I would recommend is to have an environment that is as similar as your live environment as possible. So if you could have a clone of your live environment, so all the assets, all the ser- uh, all the server code that is on live to have on this live uh, environment and stuff like that, and then use that as your testing ground. Because, you know, we also have um, multiple servers that we work on and some servers have a version of the code, other servers have another version of the code, not to mention assets that are missing from uh, some environments and stuff like that. So having a replica of your live environment and using that for testing the live ops stuff, I think it's the best way to go. Uh, The specifics of how you do it and how you go about it are really not that important. um, As long as, like I said, you have um, reproduced the live environment as best as you could. Because it's very important to make sure, like you, like you said yourself, when it goes live, it needs to be exactly as it was in the testing stages. And this can be challenging if you don't have a similar configuration as the one that you already have on live. Because, you know, like you said, some stuff are there, some stuff are not there. And then you're like, hey, where is it? <laughs> That's, well, great. That's great. That's great. Cool. Um, Moving on to a different subject, which is actually really near and dear to my heart. Um, So um, at all of my companies that I've started, 
um, we have this idea of core values and, and that's something that we really look for in, in like when we're going through hiring, um, you know, all the people management type stuff. And that central core value that I've never seen change is this idea of being user focused. Um, and, and user focus can mean a lot of different things depending on where you're at, but really uh, what it means to me is deeply understanding the workflow and the product through the eyes of the person that is using this thing in front of you. Um, and I, I think you might have called it like building for humans. Um, yeah. But I, I'd love to, you know, understand your take on, you know, building a tool with like a clean system behind it with this idea of like building it for humans. Well, you know, this is a very lengthy topic that goes into a lot of other fields. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's important when you're building for humans to understand how the brain works, to understand how perception works, to understand motivation, and then use that kind of like neuropsychology to build your tool for persons and not for other systems, you know, because like I mentioned before, uh, people don't don't like to be thinking too much. Uh, and a tool should not make you think too much. The tool should be doing the thinking and just asking you, what do you want from me? Right. So um, it's very complicated to explain this uh, in such brief uh, time. But uh, yeah, building for humans for me is making sure that you know that a person is going to use that um, and that people are prone to mistakes. So trying to compensate the human nature through your tools and together they can create a system that actually works and delivers uh, a good experience for users and for players because you know that's the whole point of live ops to make sure that your players are um, having a good experience and they are playing your game with pleasure and excitement and uh, i think that tools play a big role into that um, because you could have like the greatest ideas in your mind and you could have like the greatest game just standing in the back of your head. But if you do not have the proper tools to make that a reality, it's just going to sit there. That's great. I love that. So I have a few more questions, um, which are, you know, some questions that I like to ask all my guests. Um, so one, uh, I am an avid learner. I always try to be learning things. Um, I find one of the most effective ways that I learn things is through reading. Um, I actually try to block off time on my calendar. Um, I don't always do it, but whenever I do, it's always totally worth it. So um, are there any books that you found to be super helpful in your career, you know, in games or, you know, in general uh, that you'd recommend mm. others check out? Yeah, I also kind of like read a lot to the point that I had to take a break because it was getting to me psychologically. Uh, but yeah, I um, I think that live ops people should uh, understand how the mind of the player works. And of course, data can help you um, with that, but you need to have the background to interpret the data, right? So it goes a lot, the gamers way. I actually read this book, Tom. It's a good book. It is. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so uh, trying to understand uh, the psychology of gamers and it will help you greatly to understand and create and design experiences for them. It will also drive your monetization models. So yeah, reading as much as you can about how people think. 
um, will will really really help you. And to that extent, um, I read a lot of psychology books, uh, philosophy books, uh, because you know thinking is cool. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and uh, I uh, also I'm a lot into user interfaces and user experiences books. I'm currently reading like the basic principles of it. I feel like every book says the same thing, but you know, like you keep reading them until they get into your head. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's how I go with it. I just consume the same content until I finally get it <laughs> and you know start actually applying it into my real life. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. It, it takes more times than I would like to admit to get something to stick with me, but, uh, mm, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, I do have one final question for you, of course, because we're on the mastering attention podcast and that is what's one tip or trick that you found, uh, over the years or learned, uh, to help boost retention. Mm, you know, this is a very interesting question because most people answer with the thing that says make your game fun which is you know not as easy as uh as one would think well, tell me but how my... to do that that would be really useful to know yeah too. right <laughs> i wish i would also know how to make a game extremely fun but i think that what i would go to uh is in addition to making the game fun i think that most people their brains are wired to look for meaning so I would say try to make your game meaningful or create meaningful experiences uh, within your game. It's just as difficult as making it fun because, you know, these are subjective things that cannot be really quanti quantified or, you know, you cannot look at the data sheet and be like, yeah, the game is meaningful. So trying to do that, and I think that the best way to try and do that is through social features. So engaging your community and creating those social bonds between the community, the players themselves, and you as a developer. And uh, that would really help help making the game a meaningful experiences because you know people go back to the game for their you know circle of friends like think about games like world of warcraft like that game is massive it's huge it's monumental and it has been here for years and i don't think it's going anywhere and that's because they've managed to build a community of people that you know they become sort of like family so I think that's one of the ways that you could totally improve retention. It's not easy to do, but um, yeah, I think it works. You know, one of the most interesting things, and I don't know if they're still here, but uh, at least like a year or two ago, they were talking about like how World of Warcraft added like free to play monetization on top of what they have. And they were doing like a billion dollars a year in like free to play monetization, making it, you know, like one of the best. And yet they're still getting all that subscription revenue and stuff too, which just kind of blew me away a little bit of like, how much value is there of like, once a game has become like part of a player's life and like their social community and relationships and things like yeah you're you're willing to spend you know money so that you can spend more time and have these you know relationships and friendships and stuff i mean how much money do people spend or at least when we used to be able to like going out to dinner or to bars or something like that dropping you know 50 bucks on a dinner isn't that big of a deal and like if you're doing that on a game that you love because you can have these meaningful relationships with people super powerful so i love that yes 
Totally. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That um, that's I feel for me the core of live ops. Uh, having players experience meaningful things with each other through your game, and perhaps even having a social impact, and you know, making the world a better place. Who knows? Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, Maddie, this has been super, super fun. I hope we can definitely uh, connect again sometime. And thank you so much. Uh, if people do have any questions about anything, is there a good way that they could reach out to you? Well, I'm uh, fairly active on LinkedIn. And when I say active, I check it out, <laughs> but uh, I'm not uh, much into posting. But yeah, people can definitely find me on LinkedIn. Um, it's Madalina Vlado. So, you know, come say hi. Yeah, check her out, say hi. Maybe we can get her to, to post a little bit more and share some of this awesome <laughs> knowledge that she obviously has been hiding from us all. So uh, thank you so much, Maddie. Uh, talk soon. Thank you.